you know, being with those kids is a delight. Uh, it is a real blessing. And um, some of them are a whole bunch of fun. They are more fun than, uh, than anybody knows what to do with, as a matter of fact. And so um, if, you, if you really enjoy hanging out with kids, uh, we have an opportunity for you. Uh, this is a good time to mention that we're looking for a couple more volunteers for uh, serving in Children's Church. Uh, some, of the, uh, some of our current volunteers are going to be either out of state uh, for the month of January or uh, doing contingency training with Caterpillar in the month of January and unable to, uh, to serve in the way that they have been. And so we have some opportunities to have your life enhanced and your reward in heaven enlarged. Um, by uh, by serving in children's church, and I hope you'll take the opportunities for that because I can tell you what we have some fun, fun kids uh, that are absolutely a delight to be with and enjoy, and uh, the opportunity to teach them what God's word says is an opportunity to make disciples in a very practical way, uh, and also have great joy in doing it because they are delightful. They really are. So, um, can you tell I'm ready to be grandpa? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, um, uh, today is a day that is the fourth Sunday in Advent. It's the, it's the fourth Sunday in a row that we celebrate Jesus' birth and all of the good things that His first coming into the world uh, foretends and, and heralds for us, even as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, uh, where we are, what we're doing, all of a sudden I lost sound. Um, what we're doing is looking forward to um, the day when Jesus, having come in his first coming to deliver us from sin, we're anticipating the day when Jesus will return again to deliver the world from all of the effects of sin. Believe it or not, the world that we live in, the world that we are experiencing right now today, is not the way that God made the world to be. Are you all relieved to hear that news? Right? That this is not the world as it is supposed to exist. And it is not the world as it will one day exist. And, and when we celebrate Jesus' birth, we're not just celebrating the fact that He has come, we're celebrating what His coming means. That if Jesus kept all of the promises of the Old Testament anticipating His coming, then guess what? That means we can trust Him to keep all of His promises in the New Testament that pertain to His return to set up His kingdom on this earth in which the wrong shall fail and the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men for all time after that. Amen? In our world right now, the wrong does not always fail. In fact, doing wrong is often a great way of advancing yourself in this world. You can get yourself all the way up the greasy pole of success in this life in a material sense, by doing wrong a lot of times. Now, sometimes it catches up with you. 
But often it doesn't. But there is a day coming when when wrong will be righted, when the scales of justice will be balanced, and the king will reign. How do we know? Because the king has come. And since the king has come, we know the king has come. Amen? So, uh, if you're with me uh, so far, let's, uh, let's get over to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at what God's Word says to us about the visit of the wise men. We sang about them, although there were probably more than three kings, and they weren't kings. But never mind that. We're going to look at this passage and see what it has to say to us and teach us about the coming of our Lord Jesus. So if you have your Bible, and if you're able and can stand with me as I read what God's Word has to say to us. This is what the Word of God says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the old wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him and assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word speaks to us about these things and invites us to respond to the coming of Christ the Savior, our Lord into our world with worship in the same way that the wise men did. And Father, help us to rejoice exceedingly with great joy, just like they did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this week we we, uh, we meet the wise men. Uh, These guys show up in every manger scene, in every Christmas pageant, the world over, wherever there is one. Uh, the wise men are there at the manger, right? Uh, the only problem is the Bible doesn't say they were there at the manger. Um, the Bible uses the word when these guys are introduced, magoi. That is the Greek plural of the word magi, wise man. Magoi is wise men, so there were at least two of them. Uh, and what, what little we know about them can be gathered from the few details we have in this section of Matthew's Gospel. We know that they are wise men. Um, that word magoi can be rendered mages or magicians. 
or if you like, sorcerers. Um, they, they're the, it's the word for the kind of spiritual advisors that were common in ancient pagan kingdoms. You know, think Babylon or Assyria or whatever. And you would roll the bones or you would sacrifice a bird or you would whatever. You would look for, for omens and signs and portents and whatever uh, to know what you ought to do in life. And these guys were the spiritual advisor experts to a king. And so these fellows, um, these are the kinds of fellows that that Moses confronts in the book of Exodus. You remember? Pharaoh called all the magicians with their secret arts to see if they could replicate the miracles that Moses was doing. And they do well right up until I think it's the plague of gnats. And then they can't do what Moses is doing. And they go, this is the finger of God. Uh, These are the kind of advisors that you would see in Persia and in Babylon. Uh, Daniel may have been considered one of these fellows because he was brought in by a couple of different kings to interpret dreams. You remember this? Um, And... And in that, we can conclude that these men are Gentiles because they are Magoi. This is not a role that's typically held by Jews. These are Gentile men. Based on the fact that they're identified as, quote, from the East, we can probably conclude that these guys are from somewhere in the Persian Empire. And many Bible teachers think, as a result of all of those factors, that probably these are men who have learned from the prophet Daniel about the coming of Messiah. If you remember, Daniel was, uh, he lived through both the King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon as well as the beginning of the transition to the Persian Empire. Uh, He was last seen in the reign of King Belshazzar on, on the night that Uh, the Persians came and took over the Babylonian Empire. Right? And uh, and Daniel was brought in to interpret dreams and visions. He later serves King Darius. It's there that he winds up in the uh, lion's den under King Darius, uh, etc. But Daniel wrote from exile about all these things that were to unfold and about the coming of Messiah who whose kingdom, when it was established, would never be shaken. And he would have had the Old Testament, and he would have taught the other guys with him about the coming of Messiah and what it would mean. So where do these guys come from? Well, these are pagan guys, or possibly not pagan, possibly believers in the true God, who have been taught by Daniel to look for Messiah's coming. And Daniel, if you read it closely and understand the dates correctly, you understand that Daniel prophesies that not just the time, but the year that Messiah will be born. And so you are looking, if you're one of these guys, for a particular year from Daniel's day 
all the way down to this very time that Messiah is born. They are looking for him. And they see, very helpfully, some signs in the form of a star that Messiah has been born. Uh, we know also that these are wealthy men based on the kind of gifts that they brought and the fact that they came to worship means that they knew what Messiah's coming meant. That the seed of the woman promised in Genesis who was coming to deal with sin and reverse the curse and defeat death and restore to life all who followed Him, that that was what Messiah's coming would mean. And so they're coming to worship. And so and what we also see is that the coming of these wise men is something that provokes a response in everybody that they encounter. And in fact, I think they confront us all today with the same need for a response. When the wise men arrive, we see in verse 2, they are asking around, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And they are looking in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the ancient capital of the Jewish nation. And so it stands to reason that that's where the newborn king of the Jews would be. But their arrival and the question that they're asking causes a stir. Because you see, these wise men are important officials in their king's court. So you shouldn't picture, like we have, a, we have Karen kind of collects nativity sets. She has, I think, four of them at our house and that she displays. My favorite one is the is the um, the Fontanini set that she has, in which all of these people are dressed like they're out of the Renaissance, right? Which is weird when you think about how ahistorical that all is, but nonetheless, they look really cool, right? And so you have like the three wise men, one's on a camel, one's on a horse, one's on an elephant, which I think is impressive, right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, And it's kind of ridiculous, but, and, but it is also... A reality that you shouldn't picture three guys, three random fellows in nice clothes, you know, on horseback or camelback or elephantback or whatever, just kind of casually sauntering into town. What you should picture is like if you've ever been to Washington and the president is going somewhere and the resulting traffic snarl that comes out of that, like when Karen and I lived in Iowa, uh, President Bush came to speak once when we were there. We actually went to see him speak at this park. But when he came in, there were like 85 cars in the entourage, all these black SUVs, you know, going by about 90 miles an hour. And uh, they've got spotters on the bridges and so forth, guys with fully automatic rifles surrounding the, 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 um, the uh, park where the president is going to be, etc. Right? There's a full-on procession. And you're like, I wonder who's in town. Because all of a sudden, there's this presence in this area that we're not used to seeing. These guys are foreign dignitaries, and they are coming. They would have been important officials. They would have come uh, with guys that were armed to the teeth to protect them on the journey. 
they would have had more than a couple of personal assistants and an arm and a detachment of armed guards. So this is not fellows, you know, like just riding into town, say, hey, where's the king? No, no. You need to picture probably a few hundred people rode into town from the Persian Empire. And it's like, uh, what are they doing here? <laughs> right? This is an event that is noticeable when it happens. And, um, and so their arrival would have received a lot of attention. And in fact, uh, asking around, hey, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Uh, would have caused even more of a stir because at the time, there is a man ruling in Jerusalem who bears the title king of the Jews and he does not have a newborn. Where is him who was born king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. King Herod. I don't have a newborn. What are we talking about? And Herod reacts first to, to this question, first of all, by calling together all of the chief priests and the scribes who would have been down at the temple. Now, we don't know if Herod was at the Antonia Fortress, which was adjacent to the temple, or if he was at his western palace, which was a few hundred yards uh, to, the, to the west, where the modern-day... Um, uh, structure called the Tower of David is. Um, but it's no more than a few hundred yards that these guys would have had to travel over to, over to Herod. And he asked them, hey, they're they're, these guys are coming to town. They've asked where the Messiah is to be born. Uh, what do you guys think? Where's the Messiah to be born? Now these guys, this, is not a, this isn't like a, a trick question in Bible trivia. They didn't have to they didn't have to pull out their their scrolls of Micah and go, you know, no, this is something that they would have known. And so they tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, which you don't know is just seven miles south on the main road from Jerusalem. So just down the street, hour and a half walk, maybe two hours. Not very far from where these guys are. Thanks to now, think about this, okay? Think about this. They tell the king where Messiah is to be born. Just after this huge entourage of people comes into the city asking, Where is the Messiah? You know from the prophet Daniel when he will be born. Thanks to the prophet Micah, you know where. Thanks to 2 Samuel, you even know what family he will come from. And you've got all of the chief priests and scribes whose job it is to teach everybody else in Israel all about all of these things. And yet, these guys make no effort to connect the dots. So Herod asked them, hey, where do we go find the Messiah? These guys are saying he's just been born. And they go, in Bethlehem of Judea. 
That's where he would be. What do you not see in your text? And so, having heard the news, all the chief priests and scribes beat feet down the road to meet the Messiah. Why didn't they do that? What you're seeing is their indifference. Now think about this. Think about what these guys' job is. The whole Old Testament, if you read it through in a sitting, points to the coming of Messiah. The whole sacrificial system in the way that the furniture of the tabernacle and then the temple is set up is designed to identify Messiah. And that as you made the sacrifices, it was designed to point you to the idea that all of these sacrifices are never done. There's no chairs to sit on in the temple because there's, there's never a final sacrifice made. We need a final sacrifice. And the Messiah is coming. Maybe He will be the one to provide final sacrifice. And these guys get asked this question in the midst of all of this and they're shockingly indifferent to the central premise of the faith. It was their job to help other people celebrate and figure out and recognize and worship the Messiah when He came. And they don't do anything. They just go back to the temple, presumably. Like, what was that about? Oh, somebody asked us where to find the newborn Messiah. Okay. But never mind all that. I got to go offer sacrifices at the temple because I'm sick. I mean, I got stuff to do. They're too busy with other things they consider more important to come and worship the Messiah. Wouldn't it be strange if there were people? who believed in Messiah's coming, who when He came were too busy with other things to go to worship. We'll leave that there for a minute. <laughs> okay. Herod is a different reaction. He is not indifferent. Not at all. He is hostile. He is too crafty a politician to let People know openly yet. But this is a man who supported Mark Antony. Uh, remember Antony and Cleopatra, right? He supported Mark Antony for emperor until uh, Mark Antony was well on his way to being defeated. And then, when it was clear that Mark Antony was going to switch, was going to lose, he switched sides and he cozied up to a guy uh, named Octavian, who was going to be the victor. He is the man known to history as Caesar Augustus. And in return for his loyalty and support, Octavian named him King of the Jews. Which is interesting because he's not a Jew. He's an Idumean. He's an Edomite. A descendant of the other son of Jacob. I mean of, of, uh, of Isaac, rather. Okay? He's not a, he's not a, he's not a Jew. He's an Edomite. This is also a man who murdered 
three of his sons, who murdered one of his wives, murdered his mother-in-law. He murdered half of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He murdered every surviving member of the Hasmonean dynasty that ruled before him, among many, many other people. Herod was not a nice guy, putting it gently. And he was a paranoid dictator, as if there's any other kind, right? Uh, but he was a paranoid dictator, and he was not about to allow a Jewish son of David, even a newborn, to rise up and displace him, fulfillment of prophecy or not. And so he calls the Magi secretly and asks them, Where they? when did you see this star? How long ago are we talking about that proclaimed the Savior's birth? And he sent them on a mission. Find the child, send word back to me. And so God foils this evil man's plan and sends the wise men home, warning them not to return to Herod. And they go back home as, by a different route, as verse 12 tells us. But that's not the end of Herod's plans. More on that later. Uh, but let's just re reflect on this for just a minute. As evil as Herod's plans are, they are still, I think, an understandable reaction. Because after all, Herod is already sitting as king. And so the coming of another one, no matter how lofty his pedigree, no matter how glorious his coming, the coming of another king is a mortal threat. And all such threats must be eliminated. But let's not miss the beauty of the wise men and their reaction. They come, first of all, the text tells us, joyfully following the star that they had seen. And this is probably a good time to remind you, if you've not seen the movie The Star of Bethlehem, we actually own it at our house, and the church owns a copy as well. Um, but it's a good one to watch, because what it'll teach you is that the entire universe, that all of the stars that exist in the universe, uh, appear to move through our field of view like an enormous clock. Now, the stars are actually fixed. Planets move which is actually what their name means. Planas is wanderer. Okay, the ones that move are planets. The ones that don't move are fixed. They're stars. But nevertheless, as our Earth moves, the stars appear to move through our field of view like an enormous clock. And so for the wise men to see the particular constellation of stars that they saw when they saw it, here's what you need to know. The Lord, before he made the universe, would have to have known exactly what day his son would be born and what day the wise men would be looking for him. Is God that sovereign? Yes. Before the universe was made. He set up the stars in such a way that on the day the Son of God would become incarnate in the world for the wise men to see the star in a far-off empire 
influenced by the prophet Daniel, 450 years prior to coming of Messiah, he would write, these wise men would see the star 450 years later and come to worship Messiah. How about that? I mean, that's that makes you feel pretty small if you really think about it, right? That God is that big that He is orchestrating all of the events of human history. Even the arrangement of the stars in the, in the night sky. So that you can have this event happen. So that you and I can read about it. And join with the wise men in worshiping God. So in their joy, they follow the star down to Bethlehem. And they find the child there. Now, when you're picturing Bethlehem, again, don't picture like Peoria. Okay? Picture like a couple of streets in Chillicothe. <laughs> okay? At this time, it's a little bitty village. Much smaller than this one. It's a few streets at most of people. So you didn't have to ask around very much. Hey, anybody have a newborn? Yeah, that is family right over there. They have a newborn. I hear it screaming all night. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Um, in a time when there are no windows in houses, uh, you knew when somebody had a newborn child, right? They find the child. And when they see him, by the way, they're at a house by then. That's what the text says. They came to the house where they were. They're not at the manger anymore. They see him. They bow down and worship. And they offer him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. All very expensive. All gifts worthy of royalty but gifts that additionally point to his role as Messiah. Gold recalls the fact that he is a king. Frankincense, if you don't know, was used both in the priestly anointing oil. When you became a priest, you were anointed with oil that was mixed with frankincense. It was also used in the oil that the priest would burn on the altar of incense that was that stood before the the veil behind which the ark of the covenant set and part of the job of the priest was to go in and offer prayers and he would burn incense that had frankincense in it that would symbolically lift your prayers up to the lord as it burned and myrrh was used in the anointing oil for prophets and also in embalming so in these gifts, they're pointing out that they believe what the Old Testament said, that Jesus would be the prophet, the priest, and the king. The one who would die for sin and offer the perfect sacrifice as the priest of himself. How about that? Jesus is the Messiah King who will rule all things. The priest who will make the final sacrifice for sin in his self-sacrificial death and resurrection. He is the true prophet who not only speaks God's word to us, but who is 
God's Word in the flesh. And all of these things lead us to one very important question that all of us must answer. How will you respond to Jesus this Christmas? How will you respond to Jesus this Christmas? If Jesus is the Messiah, then He is the true King not only of the Jewish nation, but of the entire world, and every person must bow in submission to Him. And since Jesus is our Messiah, then He is owed our allegiance and our obedience in every part of our lives, both the seen parts and the hidden parts. Both the public persona that you put out in front of other people and the who you are at home, and all by yourself. Jesus is owed your allegiance and your obedience in every part of your life. But just like Herod was already sitting as king, and he was not willing to be dethroned, there are people, maybe even people within the walls of this church on this Sunday morning, who are meeting Jesus this Christmas with hostility because they already sit enthroned as king over their own lives and they do not want another. They're like, Jesus, I'm interested that you came, but I'm already king of my life and I don't want you to displace me. And so they hold him at a distance at best and are hostile to Him at worst. Maybe that describes you here this morning. Maybe you're here not because you want to be to worship the King, but because someone dragged you here. But if hostility toward Jesus describes you up to now, can I plead with you to come down off of the throne of your life and to make peace with Jesus, who is the true King. I mean, being very honest, you have not been a very good King over your life as it is. And I can tell you that the longer that you remain enthroned as King of your life, the worse it will be. And the only hope that you have is instead to yield the kingship of your life to a new and better king, to King Jesus, and to bow before Him in worship because that king gives abundant life just as He promises to everyone who puts their trust in Him. And He will rule your life far better than the mess you have made thus far. Trust me. But I bet most of us don't fit into that category. Most of us, I think, would not say that we are hostile. We're excited, in fact, for Christmas to come. Our family will visit. We're going to see some old friends. We're going to get time away from work. We're going to eat well. We're going to give and receive presents. And it's going to be great. We're excited. But when it comes to the actual purpose and reason for all the celebrations, you feel, uh, I don't know, just kind of, indifferent about the whole thing. 
I mean, maybe you're, you're, you're thinking, maybe even this morning you were thinking, here we are at church, we're singing the same old Christmas carols, we're listening to the same old story we do every year, and it just all feels so familiar. It's so hard to be excited. And on top of that, I've got all these other things to do right now, Pastor. I can tell you, confessing very honestly, that at times in the past for me, uh, this has been me. Too busy to worship. I got I, I got too much to do to help people get ready to worship. Which is odd and ironic, right? I can't worship God right now. I got I got stuff to do. To help people get ready to worship. And if that's you, then hear again the words of the angels to those sleepy shepherds on that hillside all those years ago. Fear not. I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and wrapped in a manger. In other words, behold your King again. Look again. I know it's the old, old story. But look again. Repent of indifference. Rejoice in the Savior who came for you. Take time this Christmas to ask the Lord for fresh eyes to see the wonder of Jesus. And ask Him to scrape away the callousness of your heart and enable you to feel anew the awe of the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come and come for you. Don't remain indifferent. Don't be callous to the good news. My hope is that all of us would have come today to worship Jesus the same way the very first Gentile believers in Him did. You know that? That these are the very first Gentile believers in Jesus. The very first ones. They knew His name. They knew He was going to come. They knew when. They followed the star to figure out where. And then they worshipped. And these are the very first of many billions of Gentile believers who have come from all over the world to worship King Jesus. And so I hope you've come today to bow in worshipful adoration, offering Him maybe not gold and frankincense and myrrh, but the very best of everything that you have and everything that you are in honor and celebration. And I know that many of you came in precisely that way, with hearts overflowing with joyful worship, and you're delighted to get to come and proclaim your love for Jesus who came to save you and loves you with an everlasting love. And that is exactly how we should all respond. Amen? Because Jesus is the true King. He is the great High Priest. He is the prophet who gives God's Word and is God's Word in the flesh revealed. And so, as we come this morning, let's worship Him. 
Not just with our lips and our bodies as we sing, although it's good that we do that. But let what comes out of our mouth be a manifestation of what comes out of our heart. Amen? We have come to worship the King. The true Messiah who was promised hundreds and even thousands of years before He came. And He came because He loves you. Amen? So let's pray and then let's sing loud the fact that we love the Savior who loved us first. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Father, uh, we thank You. We are amazed by You again. Father, as we tell the old, old story of the Savior who came from glory, Father, help us to see it with fresh eyes, to hear it with fresh ears, and to respond with new hearts with great and exceeding joy that Jesus Christ came for me, for us, because He loves us with an everlasting love. And Father, let us rejoice in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.